The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's uh, Easter. It's also Earth Day. And uh, it's pretty close to when some people celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment. So it's a nice, we'll take it as a nice day. Uh, I think it's Earth Day is uh, one of my two favorite holidays. Maybe not an official holiday, but that and Martin Luther King Day. Uh, Martin Luther King Day because of the social justice and Earth Day because of the environmental justice, the caring for the environment. And um, so I thought I would say some words about um, uh, Earth Day. But first, uh, you know, there's a wonderful coincidence that the same day as Easter. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, uh, the rest of the world, outside the English-speaking world, uh, doesn't call Easter Easter. I mean, they have a different language, right? But they usually use a word that's uh, connected to the Hebrew, Greek, Latin word for uh, Passover, uh, the Christians kind of adopted the pa- Hebrew word for Passover. So in like French, I think it's Pascal. In Norwegian, it's uh, Poske. It's, uh, it's, uh, and, uh, but we have, in English, we have Easter. And uh, Easter comes from uh, English, Germanic, um, Northern European name for the goddess of the dawn. And uh, we have a record from the 8th century of someone writing saying that um, that uh, in his gener- his lifetime, uh, people stopped celebrating uh, the um, you know the, the celebration, the spring celebrations around the goddess of Easter, and have now switched over to celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And um, but somehow they uh, the English word or the Germanic word for Easter, uh, this goddess continued uh, as the preferred name in English for this particular holiday. And um, so I kind of find that delightful that, you know, that, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, in the background here is a time to celebrate spring, the beginning of dawn, the kind of a uh, nature worship perhaps from the old days before those Christians came over and pushed it aside or they got lost. And, um, and also, you know, the resurrection of Christ is also a beautiful idea, symbolically for some people, uh, the, the birth of something new. And um, so here we are, Earth Day. And so that Earth Day is only about 40, day, 40 years old. <clears throat> and uh, also celebrating, I think, an appreciation of nature, a, um, a connection to nature, gratitude for our natural world, <clears throat> but also the protection of the natural world uh, that we have to protect it. So I wanted to um, uh, say a few words about uh, my, own connect- my own connection to uh, both Buddhism and uh, environmental care, uh, because for me, in my, in my formative years in college, that those were closely connected. I was going to school at UC Santa Barbara, and uh, they just had a massive oil spill down there just before I started freshman year in college. And there was, uh, you'd walk on the beaches in Santa Barbara, maybe still today, and you'd go home with um, oil blobs on your feet because of the oil that's seeping out. Much, much of it natural, but uh, some of it maybe not. And, um, 
And uh, we were studying, uh, you know, I got very, when I was 19, got very interested in, in the ecological crisis of the time. And <clears throat> in the, uh, started studying you know, how to address these kinds of issues. And uh, understood there was more than just politics was needed, but some kind of uh, change of, back then we called it change of consciousness, some kind of a different uh, view or orientation towards uh, our place in the natural world. And so I eventually came upon Buddhism, and one of the important doorways for me into Buddhism was actually as a philosophy that would help um, uh, offer a more uh, ecological view of how humans can live in this world. The, uh, and then as I started practicing Buddhism, the, uh, what was surprised to me was not the philosophy of Buddhism, which can be seen as being quite supportive of an ecological lifestyle or approach to life, but, um, but rather was the, change, act, the actual change of consciousness, the change of mind states that happened through meditation and how that changed mind state creates a very different relationship to the natural world and to others, to the whole world, than um, any philosophy could ever do or any, um, um, you know, the pre-existing kind of understanding of self and other that I inherited or grew up with here in the West. Buddhism has myths, <clears throat> and some of these myths uh, can be... Uh, tapped into for resources or understanding or inspiration for a Buddhist approach to nature. And uh, one of the primary myths have to do with how the Buddha was awakened. It's said that he was awakened underneath a banyan tree um, in the, around this time of the year. And, he, um, and there are three uh, wonderful myths. The first myth is that uh, he sat under this banyan tree for uh, several weeks uh, pursuing his awakening. And during that time, a great naga, a naga is a great serpent, snake, um, came to protect him when it started raining. And uh, I have at home a little statue of uh, the Buddha sitting in meditation. And this, um, he's co- the base of the Buddha is uh, the, kind of supporting him is this... Uh, wrapped around coils of the bottom of a snake. And then the snake, like a big viper, comes up, over the, comes up the, uh, behind him and then spreads his, uh, his head above the Buddha, spreads out its kind of, like, kind of wing-like cobra kind of thing on the neck over him and creates a wonderful umbrella. Um, and then this fierce uh, cobra snake kind of like looking at you if you look at the Buddha above him. He's sitting peacefully in this fierceness above and so this idea that um, the snake represents uh, something in nature to respect, uh, some a power, a force, a force, um, uh, and that uh, comes to protect us, protect us. The Buddha was living supposedly in harmony with nature. He wasn't trying to harm it, and um, and doing something very profound uh, to be awakened, to awaken to his connection to the natural world. And in that, uh, uh, this, uh, this thing that deserves respect, a natural force came up and protected him. So this speaks uh, to the idea that, uh, how, or asks the question, you know, how are we protected by nature? The natural world, the ecology we, we live in, the global uh, uh, environmental um, resources that support our life, our lifestyle, 
And um, I would say that it doesn't take much reflection to see that there's a tremendous amount of ways in which we are protected by nature. And uh, our whole sustenance of our life depends on the abundance and the well-being of the natural world, that it has to work just right. Um, uh, It's not uh, uncommon these days to read people who say that for human life to exist, for life to exist on this planet, um, it's kind of like a very odd because a tremendous amount of very precise things had to happen uh, after the Big Bang. And down into it had to be a certain, you know, I mean, the, all these different things had to be just right. The strength of the gravitational force, the strength of the electrons and atoms and everything. Things were slightly different than what they are now. Everything would collapse or everything would kind of, uh, you know, just vaporize out, out, out. But somehow the universe is held together just right. And then we're just the right distance from a, from a star, from our sun, so we don't burn up or we don't cold just large enough planets so we have an atmosphere. It's phenomenal, you know, that uh, what has to be just, just right in order for us to exist. And then, um, and then, you know, it wasn't that many millions of years ago when this planet wouldn't have sustained life or human life and things slowly evolved and developed. And, and now we have this wonderful planet that uh, supports human life, animal life, relatively well. Um, these people who live in this part of the world, it supports well. There are places in the world where um, it doesn't do such a good job supporting them. It's a big challenge. And now that the, the global kind of uh, climate is being challenged or changing, for whatever reason it's changing, it's the people who live in the marginal areas that tend to suffer the most. The people who, for whom uh, they're just barely having enough water already, um, it's beginning to dry up uh, even more. And so the idea that uh, the natural world protects us, sustains us, supports us, and that it's something that we should respect and care for so it can care for us, I think, uh, for me, I read that back into the story of the snake, the Naga, coming to protect the Buddha. Um, the second myth, the part of the Buddha's enlightenment, is that he um, had some doubts about his uh, right to be Awakened. In fact, uh, this myth goes that this kind of devil-like figure got, came to the Buddha and challenged him and said, what right do you have to be enlightened, to be awakened, to be free? And um, uh, it came at the very end of his quest. And I see it as sometimes doubt as being one of the last hindrances to allow people to do the dramatic uh, freeing of the heart that liberates it from a lot of the social conventions, social obligations, social um, uh, conditioning that we grew up in. It's very hard to become free of. And so the doubt, is it okay to take that step? Is it okay to step uh, in some ways to become free from our conditioning and from our biological sometimes perhaps um, urges of, of hate, of greed, of lust, of delusion that some people have? And so, uh, what do we? Um, and so, the Buddha had some doubt. And where do you go when you you're the you know the Buddha to be, and you have doubt about about this? And so, the the myth goes that the Buddha uh, reached his hand down and touched the earth. And uh, and the view was that uh, this the earth goddess, <clears throat> the goddess of the earth, 
then uh, shook. That was an earthquake. Uh, <clears throat> uh, attesting to his right or his uh, worthiness to become free and to be enlightened. And so I'm quite fond of this idea that uh, to find his right his, to be awakened, that the Buddha called upon nature. You know, he was sitting outdoors meditating under the banyan tree, sitting on the ground, and, uh, and he called upon the natural world to be his witness to his right to be awakened, to be free. And to what degree is the natural world our witness? To what degree is our connection to a natural world meaningful, supportive, helpful for us? Uh, some people grow up in urban settings where they never see the ocean. I've heard of people who grew up in, um, in Oakland who have never seen the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it seems kind of amazing, right? To, uh, it's kind of amazing to see the Pacific Ocean, to feel the vastness of it all. And uh, or have never been, uh, you know, in the mountains or in the forests or many places. Uh, people who go to the natural world, uh, that's not uncommon for them to feel something changes within them. Uh, sometimes it's a changing understanding of who they are themselves. Um, uh, changing understanding of values and priorities of their lives. If you get to spend time in nature, there's something that happens. Uh, the more time, the more deeply we go into nature, something begins shifting and changing for us. When I was living at Tassajara, the Zen monastery in the, Car- in, the in the Big Sur Mountains, deep down in the Montana National Wilderness, um, you take a, I think it's a 14-mile road you take uh, over a dirt road. It's a kind of treacherous road full of potholes and cliffs going down and you go up steep, steep and try not to use your brakes going down the other side because, you know, it's steep and they burn up, the brakes. And then you come all the way down and so you're kind of in the middle of this private property in the middle of one of the great national wildernesses in the United States. So, I, you know, I would live there for three years. It was great to live there. But uh, the second, second year I was there, there was a Dutch man who came from Holland to be a monk there, to live there. And, um, and he went once to the edge of the property of the monastery up on a hill and looked out up down further up the valley, up the river to a waterfall that was across there. And he started crying. And uh, he said that never in his life had he seen nature untouched by human beings, you know, or, or, or untouched or unchanged by human beings. Growing up in Holland and Northern Europe, uh, the natural world there, the land had all been changed and, and rearranged and uh, forests cut down and dikes built and areas uh, farmed. And so he, in the way he grew up, he had never seen nature that had been unchanged by humans. And he started to cry. It's quite something. One of the uh, sacred spots for me in um, here in the Bay Area. I think of it as sacred that I've never been on. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's sacred for me. Is um, the San Francisco has this uh, uh, Crystal Springs Reservoir, you know, the water supply for the measurement. And much of the land going uh, uh, above the Crystal Springs, either side of 92, especially north of 92, um, is for many years was uh, uh, you couldn't visit it. No one is allowed to visit it unless you were maybe uh, working, working for the water district. And so I don't know how many acres it is, but it's uh, you know, a big, big piece of land. 
that uh, has been walled off from human beings to enter. You know, they don't want, I guess, you know, things to be flowing down into the reservoir maybe. I don't know why it is. But the fact that there's this huge, huge acreage right here in the Bay Area that humans can't go in and mess with. And not only that, we can't even visit it. Uh, I hold, uh, I, I hold kind of very special. Like, like wow, you know, you know, I, I like it. And I was a little bit disappointed some years ago when they opened one trail through it. And I don't know if you have to go with a tour guide or something, or with some, you have to. No, you can go by yourself. What? What? Someone from the water. the water district has to go with you. But now it's kind of. So I was a little. Bit, so I was kind of disappointed. Because <laughs> you know we should we should we should, we should you'd have done it. And I, I think we should respect, you know, it's kind of like symbolically, this idea we, we, something about nature we, we should respect and not make it all our own, not feel like, you know, we can do whatever we want and, and pillage from nature and, and ruin it. And so uh, it's the fact that there's this part that we can't go to mostly um, is, uh, I kind of hold kind of special in my heart. And um, so what is it that nature does for us? You know, so it certainly protects us, it provides us with everything we need but um, but what happens what's that uh, heartfelt connection or what's that sh- change of relationship that happens when we are in the presence of the natural world in some deep way um, I think uh, priorities change as I like to point out that if you go spend two, three, four days uh, in the wilds like you're backpacking or something um, some of the things that seem so important when you're back in urban life begins to shift. Um, uh, you know, you uh, how clean your clothes are not that important. You know, you spill ketchup on your shirt and, you know, like, it doesn't matter, right? Who cares what people think about you and ketchup on your shirt? But, you know, uh, come into the urban environment, you don't want to be caught dead, you know, <laughs> with walking through the city streets and going to work with ketchup on your shirt. And, uh, and maybe you shouldn't. Maybe it's good to keep that clean. But, but somehow the, the uh, social conditionings and what's important and how we see ourselves begin to change. And it's not uncommon for people to feel very alone and lonely in an urban place if they're alone and no one talks to them or they're in their own house or something. But you go into the natural world and you feel very alone. But even if you don't see anyone, you don't feel lonely. Um, one of the beautiful... Um, one of the kind of paintings, artworks that inspired me when I was 19 and 20 and beginning to explore this, our connection to the natural world was the Chinese water co- uh, uh, brushstroke paintings of, um, of, of, of nature. Often it was this beautiful mountain and river going through it or waterfall and, and it was just kind of very inspiring to see. But if you came in up close to the, the painting you'd see there'd be a little hut with a person in the hut in the edge of the mountain or something. And, you know, and to, somehow the scale of the natural world and the human being living in harmony with it was very inspiring. Um, as opposed to um, some of the Western kind of Renaissance painting where the people stood in the foreground and nature wasn't behind. Like in Mona Lisa, right? The beautiful painting we have. And, um, but, you know, Mona Lisa, takes, you know, she fills almost the whole canvas and you have to kind of look in kind of in a hazy way in the background is, you know, the, that's probably the, the Fiorentine back, uh, you know, landscape in the back. So, 
is there, so, you know, what, what, what is, how does being in nature shift our understanding of who we are as people? And how does it shift our relationship to the natural world itself? And uh, if it does shift it, if the being in the natural world shifts our understanding of self and the world, what does it say about the status or the, or the uh, um, what does it say about what the sense of self is and what does it say about what the understanding is, what, what the nature of the understanding is of our place in the, in the natural world, in the world. So what I'm trying to say in a clumsy way is that our concept of self is fluid. Our concept of self is for the most part a, a social creation. It's a convention. And it's, can, it's fluid and that it can be changed and uh, changed depending on circumstances. And uh, uh, if you live in different societies, uh, different cultures, different cultures have different concepts of self and different concepts of what it means to be a self in their society, what it means to be a self in relationship to nature. And I don't want to say that one culture has a, you know, a leg up, you know, a better sense of self than others, but every culture, part of what a culture needs to do is to condition members of its culture to have a self-concept that fits in there so that we're harmonious with each other. Just like uh, every culture needs to teach its members a language so they can talk with each other, they have to teach uh, you know, basic ideas of what it means to be a kind of a self. If you insisted on having being your own true self, that's one of the kind of ideas in America, you know, be true to yourself, be your own person, find yourself. There's often so much emphasis on self, 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 and find yourself. And if it's taken uh, too seriously, this idea, then um, you might want to decide that uh, to really be kind of your own person, you should uh, just uh, uh, invent your own language. Show those people. <laughs> uh, you know, just speak your language that no one else speaks in the world. You know, so your, your original language. Why use an old language? An old-fashioned language that everyone speaks. It's kind of like passé, right? The English, you know, it's been around for a long time. And why bother? And, you know, we're ready for an upgrade anyway. And you don't want to, you know, speak a language that other people speak. It should be something that you speak. It's ridiculous, right? The purpose of language is to communicate with other people. If you, you're the only one who spoke it, it doesn't serve its purpose. So the concepts of self we have um, also are deeply socially conditioned phenomena that, that uh, are kind of like a language that helps us communicate, be involved with people. And, um, but it's fluid, it's created. And so being in nature, spending time in nature, and you start seeing and feeling your sense of self shift and change um, is a very important uh, lesson so that we don't take the concept of self too seriously or as too fixed. Uh, I saw this, wasn't exactly connected to nature, but uh, when I was 17, I was kind of like a hippie <clears throat> traveling around Europe in a Volkswagen van. And... Um, we had almost no money at all. I think I had $50 for the trip. And uh, five of us were in this van. We traveled through Yugoslavia and Greece and all over. And one of the people, he was 19. My friend, everyone, the rest of us were 17. But my, the guy who drove was 19. And he was looking for a, a French connection. He was looking for the place where we could buy lots of marijuana. <laughs> and we were, he was going to drive it back to Amsterdam. 
and so that was kind of like the subtext of our travels. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we made it to Dubrovnik, and had an address, nothing doing. So uh, Greece, that's where we'll find it. So we traveled to Greece, and we had a great time in Greece, not finding any connection. Belgrade, we had an address in Belgrade. So we drove up to Belgrade. This is ridiculous, right? 17-year-olds. And, um, and, you know, it was a communist country back then. And came to Belgrade, and, and we had this address. And in the evening, we showed up and knocked on the store, on the third floor of an apartment building. And it turned out to be the only uh, rock and roll band in Yugoslavia. <laughs> you know, they, they lived there. So they were happy to see us, and they put us up. And, and, um, and then um, for the night, and then in the middle of the night, I don't know what time it was, the, the Yugoslavian police stormed the... <laughs> And, and uh, they left us all there, but they weren't happy with everybody there. So uh, there was no, but there was no connection there either. <laughs> so, um, but but the thing about that trip was that um, there were five of us. We had very little money, traveling in this Volkswagen van all over and sleeping outside. We didn't. You know, we slept outdoors. We slept back then in the park uh, right underneath the Acropolis. That was quite something. Sleep there in the night and look up and. See the lights. I don't think you could, probably can't do it anymore now. Who's sleeping all over the place? And um, and the um, but we shared everything. That's the point I wanted to say. So we shared uh, all the money we had. We shared if we anybody would buy, we'd share with everybody else. It was just completely kind of a commune on wheels, you know. And uh, it was very nice. Kind of we we did it all without thinking. It was an like obvious thing to do. And then I went back to Los Angeles for my senior year in high school. And uh, was hanging out with my friends. And there was no sense that we were all in it together sharing. We'd go out to a hamburger joint after school to, and someone wouldn't have money. And I said, well, I have money. I'll pay for it. No, 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 no. We couldn't. That wasn't allowed. You couldn't do that. The idea that you would, we were all kind of sharing our resources and helping each other out and like we're all in it together was a foreign idea and friends that I had. And it was kind of uh, harsh for me to kind of go from this time in the summer where we were all sharing to a time where sharing was not allowed, was not accepted, wasn't, wasn't something we did. Different views of self, different ideas of self, uh, different understandings of what it means to be in relationship to other people. And so um, uh, one of the things that Buddhism teaches is uh, that phenomenal interconnectedness, the fundamental but basis by which our human life is dependently co-arisen, uh, interconnected with um, the world around us. That um, we don't exist independent of the world, we don't exist um, as uh, autonomous units, but who we are and our experience of life, our thoughts and our values are all arisen dependently, conditionally, inter- interconnectedly with the world around us. And so in that interconnected, interdependent nature of ourselves, our ideas, our concepts of self, um, it's also fluid. It's changeable. Uh, there are some, uh, if it's not helpful and healthy, certain views of self, uh, the good news is we're not stuck by it. It can shift and change. Uh, we can adopt and find more healthier, more helpful views and understandings of self that we can engage our life with and support our life with. And now with uh, the kind of the global ecological crisis, it just seems to get stronger and stronger. Um, or even if you don't think it's a, 
you know, even for people who don't believe it's human created, that climate change and everything is going on, chances are very good that over the next, uh, uh, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, certainly in the lifetime of my, my own children, maybe in our own lifetime for many people on our planet, um, people are going to have a tremendous amount of challenge uh, with um, uh, human life, with being able to have, live in places where there's enough water, live in a place where the, uh, the crops that they're used to growing can still grow. The changes are going to create a tremendous uh, challenge to how people live their lives. And are we ready to li- Are we ready for that challenge? How are we going to get ready for that challenge? It's kind of heartbreaking to me that what people are saying that people who are well familiar with uh, the predictions of what's going to happen to the Earth over the next fifty years is uh, most people have uh, seem to have given up any hope that we can reverse the damage or the change that's coming our way. It's already coming our way, and now they're saying we have to try to. Uh, lessen the impact and, le- and, and now figure out how to cope with the impact. And how do we cope with the impact in such a way that there can be economic uh, uh, and social and environmental justice for everyone on the planet so that everyone's uh, uh, well-being is taken into account. Uh, we don't have a history uh, of doing such a good job at that. Uh, it wasn't many years ago where there was no conception in the West for many people in the West, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, where Europeans mostly, and, but also Americans, um, really pillaged the world, you know, and uh, went to war in order to get resources from others, a guarantee that cheap resources were available for the West. Had no sense that uh, they were stealing from whole other cultures and countries um, to mine and take the resources in order to build up the West. In the last 50 years, there's been much more understanding of how all this works, and much more, uh, you know, but I don't know how much a big difference that has made. But uh, as we go into the future, uh, this interconnected world we live in, uh, what is the sense of self, what is the sense, the understanding of self and other that we want to develop and live by, so to create the most helpful environment, most helpful conditions for the globe as a whole? Do we want to see the globe as a whole, as one big family, or is it really it's me against them? It's, you know, it's my family, it's my clan, it's my town, it's my country, um, and I'm not really going to pay attention to what's happening elsewhere. There's a beautiful story uh, that's told in the, in the Buddhist tradition of a monk who had who had dysentery, and he was sick in bed and uh, soiling himself. And the other monks were not taking care of him. And so one day the Buddha, with his, with his uh, attendant, Ananda, came across this monk, sick and soiled in bed. And uh, the Buddha then and Ananda, they went and cleaned the monk up, carried him to a clean bed, and then gathered all the monks together to talk to them. Because, you know, this was kind of not right that a monk should be unattended to, laying soiled, um, being ignored. And the Buddha said to his monks, he said, now that you are monastics, you have no mother and father to take care of you. Now you, have, now you only have yourselves to take care of yourselves. And he said, in a very powerful way, he said, for those 
who want to attend to me, they should attend to your fellow monastics, your community. And why that's powerful is that in the Indian religious scene, attending to the guru, to the teacher, is considered one of the most meritorious forms of spiritual practice you can do. And so there's a lot of emphasis given to that. And for the Buddha to redefine caring for the teacher to be caring for your community, I think it's a very powerful lesson. For us, we're not monastics here, I don't think. Um, But I would like to reinterpret this particular instruction the Buddha gave to his local community of monks to, for us in our global community, in this world that we live in, this earth we live in, this global community, there is no other outside who's going to take care of us. Taking care of us is up to us to take care of ourselves as a global community. Those who would care for their spiritual life should care for our global community, for the world we live in. So, what's the sense of self? What's the understanding? And this fluid understanding of self, how do we, how do we want to understand this world that we live in? What choices do we make about our understanding of the world, our understanding of ourselves? It's a, if you don't make a choice, if you don't see it as a choice, then uh, you've made an unconscious choice. The choice has been made for you, perhaps by your society, about the notion of self, notion of other, your relationship to the world that we live in. How deeply have you looked at this for yourself? The third myth of the Buddha's enlightenment. So the first one has a snake. The second is the earth as the witness, our connection to the natural world. And the third myth is that of um, after his enlightenment. It said that for seven days after his enlightenment, he sat under the banyan tree enjoying the bliss of his awakening, of his freedom. And then, it's the myth goes, uh, he took uh, a number of, he got up and took a number of steps away from the tree and uh, turned around and looked back at the tree and then uh, stood there and expressed his gratitude to the tree under which he sat. This idea of expressing gratitude for the tree. So he was supported by the tree, it, shade, it gave him shade, it gave him support, it was his location, his place. But to turn around and express <coughs> gratitude for the tree. Now you can say logically it might make some sense to do so, and maybe logically you can come to the idea to express gratitude for a place that supported you. But my, my kind of sense is that it was much more than gratitude that happened, or much more than a logical uh, finding your way to gratitude. And this is where uh, uh, I mentioned earlier, my, one of my surprises in doing Buddhist practice is the change of consciousness that comes with doing the practice. That as, um, and you know, primarily I think of it in meditation, though sometimes being out in nature for a long time can make the same shift. Uh, other things can do as well, but for me it was a meditation. That as we meditate, one of the things that's happening in meditation is that the, the normal discursive activity of the mind begins to quiet down. The normal stories we tell ourselves begin to quiet down. And these stories, these acti- activities of telling ourselves stories, have a huge impact on ourselves psychologically and our well-being. It has huge impact on the choices we make on the world and a huge impact on how we see the world around us. 
more often than not, we see others, we see the world through the filter of the stories that we tell, through, the val- to, through our desires and our wishes, our fears and our delusions. As the mental activity quiets, the activity of story-making quiets, as the mind quiets, the heart quiets more, the activity of greed, desire, fear, hate, quiet. As it quiets even more, the, the mental activities that are involved in creating the sense of self that we normally have begins to quiet down as well. And it's quite remarkable to discover that what we, t- what we, what we thought was just, which is assumed or inherent or deeply embedded in, our, in who we are, our sense of self is also a construct, also arises out of the activity of the mind. And to have all these activities quiet down and then to open your eyes and look at the world, the world looks different. It's very different, unless your old way rushes back in and you open your eyes. But it looks different. One of the ways it looks different is is that it's very hard in a very deep, quiet, clear mind that sees clearly without all the the overlays of stories. Um, It's uh, uh, the tendency is we don't see a sharp separation between self and other, sharp separation between the world and me. That uh, this we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a seeing, not an understanding, conceptual, but a seeing of a deep interconnectedness. That we're not separate. We're all together in some profound, meaningful way. So much so that if you look at a tree, the tree is not different than you. You're not different from the tree. You become the tree almost. The tree becomes an extension of you. You become an extension of the tree. Um, the, I remember when I was about 20, uh, at a time when I was very deeply coming out of this kind of way of seeing, I watched someone uh, tear a leaf off a tree. And it was painful for me to see that. Now, I thought afterwards, maybe that's kind of silly, isn't it? That's kind of silly, kind of to just be, to have that kind of sensitivity to feel the pain of a leaf being torn off a tree. I mean, but in fact, I thought it was actually quite profound to feel that sense of connectedness to the natural world. The Buddha said, uh, uh, for, something, he said some, for someone who sits or sleeps under a tree, under the shade of a tree, um, for them to then get up and break a branch off the tree is similar to, is the same as harming a friend, or is harming a friend. You liken the tree to a friend. So the Buddha, after his enlightenment, stood back, walked away from the tree, turned back and looked at it, and something happened in that seeing of the tree that he felt like he had to bow to the tree. Actually, the myth goes on and says, he stood there for seven days. Um... Uh, expressing his gratitude for the tree. And I'd like to see this as, uh, as uh, you know, as symbolic for gratitude towards the natural world that we live in. But, not, uh, but the gratitude that comes out of a heart and a mind that sees with clarity, 
a heart and mind that's learned to see not through self-interest, but rather um, um, sees as if we don't need to be self-interested. The kind of profound liberation and freedom of heart where we just are there, free, seeing clearly, ready to respond with the heart's ability for compassion and care and honesty. The kind of freedom where we don't have to limit ourselves by this kind of self-interest that comes out of fear. Fear that it's, we're living in a world of limited resources and I better keep it all to myself. The kind of freedom where it's okay to let go and simplify our lives. I think that as, we, as the, my guess is as the world the, over the next you know, 50 years, we're going to come to appreciate more and more the wonderful little saying that goes, live simply so that others can live. So the freedom that Buddhism points to is a freedom that allows us to pick up a simple lifestyle, a lifestyle that causes less harm to the world with joy and happiness and not with a sense of limitation and, and, uh, and doing without or diminishing our, us. So, so the last thing I'll say is that the Buddha in the night of his awakening or, you know, something shifted in him something clarified, he could see in such a clear way that he shifted, I like to use modern terms, he shifted from being egocentric to being ecocentric. <laughs> and that in that transformation, the ecocentric view and what follows from that, his gratitude, his bowing to the tree, was not an obligation but rather was, came from the joy or the singing of his heart. I think that it's possible to engage responsibly and actively with the environmental challenges of our time, not through despair, <coughs> though despair, I think, having your heart broken is part of the deal now, but rather uh, as we free the heart and mind that we can come from a place of joy or ease or come from the kind of the natural response that comes when we're not held back or caught up in the self, me, myself, and mine. Acting from the place where there is no self separate from the world, there is no world separate from the self. And so that responding and caring for the tree is caring for yourself. It just feels natural to do, just like you would care for yourself in an easy, natural way. That self-care gets extended to the whole world. The whole world is a self. So, um, today is Earth Day. Please spend some time today celebrating and appreciating and protecting this wonderful planet that sustains us. Thank you.